0: Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbau. Today we begin a special two-part series of Intention to Treat about the man many call America's doctor, Anthony Fauci. Fauci is now 82. He is considered one of the country's most significant voices in science and medicine. He's also left an indelible mark on so many people's lives. This past December, Fauci retired after 54 years at the National Institutes of Health, 38 of them running the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Fauci has worked under seven US presidents, advising them on health threats ranging from SARS and Ebola to HIV and COVID-19. We speak with some of the people who worked closely with Dr. Fauci over his long career. We begin with Deborah Birx, an American physician and diplomat and the Coronavirus Response Coordinator under the Trump administration.
1: I have known Dr. Fauci since the early 80s, when Dr. Fauci was really working on autoimmune diseases. And he was my attending when I was a fellow. So um, I met him when I was 24.
0: When Debbie Burks began her medical training at NIH, she says Anthony Fauci helped her understand that patients were always the priority.
1: So everybody's under a lot of pressure to get all the facts and figures and all of the data and science right and present it to Tony in a clear and and concise way. And then you follow him into the room and you watch him stand at the bedside and lean over and listen to the patient. And the first thing he asks is not only how are they doing, but How's their family doing? I mean, he's really showing the humanity of medicine and science. Even in that time, you could tell that he cared for these patients and he wanted them to do well. And the faster you could move discoveries from the bench to the bedside where it could really make a difference was what was important.
0: It was early in Anthony Fauci's career at the NIH, and at the time, he worked on fatal autoimmune diseases.
1: In order to become a patient at the NIH, you have to have a very serious illness. And at that time, there were people that had Wegner's granulomatosis as a type of autoimmune disease or severe lupus that weren't responding to steroids. And in those cases, those autoimmune diseases can be deadly. And so some of those young women, 40- and 50-year-old women, were in the hospital, you know, moms that were trying to raise their children and were actually dying from autoimmune diseases. His whole idea was we needed to be more aggressive.
0: Fauci, Burks points out, was one of the first doctors to try cancer drugs for diseases other than cancer.
1: In that time, everybody was scared of chemotherapy. I mean, you didn't take chemotherapy unless you had cancer. It was that kind of scientific understanding of how the immune system worked and then translating that into potential new therapy that could save these individuals' lives, which in the end it did.
2: Tony was interested in infectious disease, but he was also really interested in immunology. And when he got to NIH, he was looking for an area where he could make a mark,
0: where he could contribute something that wasn't already known. This is Dr. Francis Collins. He was director of the NIH from 2009 to 2021.
2: And he got interested in these vasculitis conditions because they were so hopeless and generally neglected and decided to take it on.
0: And Collins says Fauci tended to ignore his skeptics.
2: And he had many people around him saying, oh, this is a dead end. You're going to regret this. This is not going to be the kind of career that goes anywhere. And he listened, but he disagreed and then decided, okay, these are terrible diseases that in most cases are ultimately fatal. This is a time to consider a really risky approach. And let's try a way to knock back this overactive immune system by basically poisoning the immune system with chemotherapy. That was bold. That was creative. That was risky. And it worked, and it made immediately a superstar status attached to Tony Fauci.
3: My name is Christine Grady. I'm the chair of the Department of Bioethics at the NIH Clinical Center. And I have been married to Tony Fauci for 38 years. Grady met her future husband at work. I actually knew nothing about him until I got to the NIH. And people on the units were talking about him in a way that made me think he was kind of a scary guy, actually. (laughs) And I thought, gee, why are they afraid of him? He doesn't look that
0: scary to me. When Christine Grady first came to the NIH in the 1980s, she was a clinical
3: nurse specialist. And among her skills, she was fluent in Portuguese. So there was a patient there who was Brazilian, who I had spent a lot of time talking to because he was very homesick and I, you know, I was missing Brazil too. And one day he asked me, could I talk to his team and see if he could get discharged? So I set up a meeting and Tony was his attending physician and I was the interpreter and they came in, you know, very seriously. And Tony, of course, serious as he tended to be, said, you know, he this gentleman still had open wounds on his leg. You have to go home and Take care of your leg and keep it raised and do your dressings every day and take it easy. And this gentleman said to me, with a straight face, actually, in Portuguese, there's no way I'm doing that. I've been in the hospital for months. I'm going to go to the beach every day and I'm going to go dancing every night. So I, you know, who knows why I did this. But in the split second of that decision, I said to Tony, he said, he'll do just what you said. And they did send him home. The next day, Tony came to me on rounds and said, I'd like to see you in my office. So I thought that he found out what had happened and he was going to fire me. But he didn't. He asked me out to dinner. And so we went out to dinner. Grady worked closely with Fauci and helped him care for his very sick patients. He had a number of patients that he was admitting with this new disease that everybody was very afraid of. I guess it was called AIDS in in 1983, but not HIV yet. It was really challenging, especially because most of the patients that we saw there were, you know, at the sort of prime of their life. And so it was really hard to know that there was really nothing we could do for most of them. Almost all the people we took care of in those early years died. So I think he was definitely motivated by the fact that these were vibrant young people who were all of a sudden getting these, this horrible disease and getting really sick really fast. And, you know, he wanted to find a solution. But for
0: the people who had the disease, that solution wasn't coming fast enough. I was diagnosed
4: with HIV back in the fall of 1985, And uh, I got lucky a year and a half later when a new movement was launched called ACT UP to fight government indifference to AIDS. And we started interacting with Tony Fauci almost immediately.
0: This is Peter Staley. He was one of the early members of ACT UP.
4: Fauci was obviously on our hit list. (laughs) He was in charge of AIDS research at the NIH. And as soon as ACT UP was launched, one of our members started requesting a series of meetings uh, with Tony. And those meetings were happening even while Larry Kramer, one of backed UP's founders, he very famously lashed out at uh, Dr. Fauci with a, a public letter he ran in a couple of newspapers. Uh, an open letter to Dr. Fauci, it was called, comparing him <laughs> to Himmler, I think, saying he was a mass murderer and He needed to listen to us.
0: Fauci agreed to meet with the activists.
4: We were surprised to learn that our main complaints against the FDA were shared by Tony Fauci. He had similar concerns that the agency was not acting like this was an emergency and was too conservative in how many trials it demanded. Too conservative and not letting people access drugs. We had this one drug that we wanted to make an example of called Gensyclovir, which could prevent blindness in people with HIV. And the FDA was demanding yet another layer of clinical trials before it would approve it. And they were demanding that Tony run that trial. And he was like, no, we know this works, we've done enough trials. So he, he was in agreement with us, and he said, well, if you want to put pressure on them, there's this new commission that Vice President Bush has launched to look at regulations,
0: and you should go protest the FDA at that commission. <laughs> and we did. With pressure from both the activists and from Anthony Fauci, the FDA changed course. And Fauci credited ACT UP. So he
4: helped put us on the map Winning these major gains, the biggest of which happened a few months later when our huge effort, not just one drug, but all the drugs, we wanted the ability to have access to them while their final clinical trials were happening with a program that we called Parallel Track. Tony liked the idea of it. He started meeting with us, and we were now hammering out the details of how this program would work. And then again, uh, within a few days, front page, New York Times, center column, above the fold, U.S. government AIDS researcher endorses early access to AIDS drugs. And it was Fauci pushing the FDA to do this, and they caved. So within a year, we had won everything we wanted from the FDA, and Fauci helped us. Fauci and the activists started to meet regularly. The guy is just extraordinarily personable. You enter a room with him and you know he's this like highly respected infectious disease and immunologist expert. And you expect to be talked down to. You expect him to start talking in a language that you only half understand. But he doesn't do that. He's very comfortable with people trying to find the Humanity and each of us, and to relate. I called it early on, I called it the full Fouch. <laughs> you got the full Fouch, this Brooklyn accent, this friendliness, you're not being talked down to. But obviously, the guy is in charge. He knows his science backwards and forwards. So we had to basically push back against the fact that we were falling for the guy right away because we, you know, we didn't want to be co-opted because we had all been wowed by the full Fouch. There would be three of us against him or four of us against him. And uh, we would plan these meetings incredibly carefully. So we started having these incredible historical dinners and there would be multiple bottles of wine and we'd have a list of things uh, that we'd try to pry out of him. We'd, We'd start... Outlining our demands, and so I think our second dinner, uh, I was put in charge of breaking some bad news to Tony, and I it was near the end of the dinner, and I said, "We've got these demands. This is, we've been talking to you about them for a few months now, and uh, you keep saying I'm working on them, uh, but we've seen no results. So we're going to demonstrate at the NIH on the on the campus, and we're going to surround your building." And he tried to talk us out of it. And we said, well, you know, you could put us on all the committees. If you gave
0: us some of our demands, we'd cancel it. And that didn't happen. Soon after that dinner, Staley and hundreds of other AIDS activists surrounded Fauci's office building at the NIH. I
4: managed to get myself over
0: the front
4: portico of of the front door of Building 31, uh, NIAID's headquarters, uh, past all the police that were underneath it and to hang a banner over over the front door. They weren't going to let me do that. So they, the cops got up there with me and and it was a very dramatic, kind of scary arrest. They, they tackled me and eventually uh, lowered me off the portico. And then they were surrounded by a thousand demonstrators. So they couldn't get me to a police van. So they zip tied my hands behind my back and they put a big burly officer in charge of me. And He was told to take me through the building to the back where there were police vans waiting at the back of the building. And then to my shock, down at the end of the hall, walking towards us, was a very familiar, (laughs) very familiar character, short, white lab coat. And I realized as he got closer, it was Tony Fauci. And I go, Tony? And he goes, he goes, Peter, you all right? And the look the cop gave me, because he knew who Tony Fauci was. And I said, yeah, Tony, I'm fine, just doing my job. How about you? He said, yeah, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to continue our work here. And then I was put into the police van out back.
0: And of course, we had a dinner, you know, months after that. During the 1990s, support for AIDS funding grew and effective treatments became available. It's a miracle. This is what drew me to infectious disease. Eric Rubin is an infectious disease physician and editor-in-chief
5: of the New England Journal of Medicine. Tony Fauci has been a part of my life from the moment that I started infectious disease fellowship. Rubin
0: was a medical student when new treatments for HIV were first introduced.
5: The fact that we were making big strides towards successfully treating it. This was extraordinarily important to the practice of infectious disease, and in fact, all of medicine. We went from a disease where, when I was a fellow, at our first visit, we would set patients up with a social worker to talk about their wills, to a disease that's a chronic, easily treatable disease in the vast majority of patients right now. Why did that happen? Who were the big stars in there? That was Tony. By 2001, millions of Americans
0: were living with HIV because of these new medications. But that was not the case in Africa and other developing countries, where people continued to die every day. At the time, Dr. Wafa El-Sadr was an infectious disease physician at Harlem Hospital. She also worked with AIDS patients in Uganda.
6: And it was a time when really there was no treatment in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, millions and millions of people were just dying. They just Communities were just decimated.
0: But there was a belief that investing in Africa was a waste of money.
6: There was people who were very vocal. They felt that it was not the right thing to do, to even attempt to bring treatment to Africa. There were concerns about people won't know how to treat people. There'll be, people won't be able to take the medicine. The rampant resistance will develop with this medication. There are no labs. There are no pharmacies. Healthcare workers are not trained. Every single excuse, I call it. And at that time, people thought this was
0: just misguided. That year, El Sader invited Dr. Anthony Fauci to come to Uganda to see for himself what was happening there. I think it was
6: the first time that he had been to Africa and healthcare workers had nothing but their bare hands. They could offer so little to alleviate the suffering. And I feel that that visit for Tony it was quite transformative, and he appreciated that something could be done about it, that this was not an impossible situation, that we had the tools, the, re- the resources, and it just would take the will and the commitment to be able to change the reality of HIV in Africa.
0: Fauci worked closely with President George W. Bush to help create the largest global fund in history to bring medications to people with HIV in Africa and dozens of other developing countries.
6: I think that it would have been quite difficult without somebody like Tony. Tony has had um, a very unique relationship to US presidents over many, many decades. And I think that offered him uh, the opportunity to be able to counsel presidents and to be able to be heard at the highest level. They trusted that he's a scientist. They trusted his instincts. Uh, they trusted him.
0: President Bush ultimately signed the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, known as PEPFAR. The program has saved tens of millions of lives and helped to build health care systems in Africa and worldwide. Tony's a survivor. He-
4: He's not a partisan, but he's very political. And I say that in the good sense of the word.
0: Again, AIDS activist Peter Staley.
4: He understands how institutions work, movements work, people work, and he understands the limits of all those and is forgiving of those limits. He, he ended up working closer With Republican presidents than he did with some of the Democrats he served. His two favorite presidents to work for were Bush Sr. and and amazingly Bush Jr., who many of us view as the prior to Trump was for us the worst president of our lifetimes. But we all concede that he was probably the best AIDS president of our lifetimes. And that was because of the partnership he developed with Tony Fauci and others, to bring AIDS
0: drugs to the rest of the world. HIV was long Fauci's priority, but he also spent time and effort on other neglected diseases. Dr. Eric Rubin of the New England Journal of Medicine runs a tuberculosis lab at Harvard.
5: What many people don't realize is that Tony set the research agenda for all of infectious disease by steering money and steering attention at the NID to different diseases. TB is a disease that benefited directly from Tony's interventions. Tony not only helped provide funding for external investigators, but took the big machine of the NID and directed it toward the kinds of programs that were important in TB. TB isn't a disease of the U.S. It's a, an unusual disease here. It's an international disease. And Tony personally was responsible for getting the NID active in international sites where the disease was endemic. Fauci's unique political skills
0: proved to be a major boon for his colleagues. Dr. Francis Collins first came to the NIH to run the Genome Project. In 1999, there was a push in Congress to privatize the project. A commercial enterprise arose
2: and explicitly suggested to the Congress uh, that they should stop funding the Public Genome Project and let the private sector uh, take care of it. It got awkward because there was a lot in the press about which was the right model. There was a lot of pressure on the Congress to take sides. There was this potential existential threat uh, to the Human Genome Project uh, that More than 2,000 people in six countries had been invested in and was now potentially going to be eclipsed by a hypothetical commercial enterprise that was going to take the whole thing uh, into becoming a commodity. I suddenly found myself really caught up in some very thorny politics and not quite sure how best to proceed. I was strongly urged, go talk to Tony Fauci. (laughs) If you don't know what to do in a complicated political situation, he's the best guy we've got.
0: Go talk to him. So that's what Collins did. It was the first time he had ever met with Anthony Fauci. I learned
2: from Tony the importance of clear communication, getting your point across, and not getting rattled and not getting defensive and not in any way giving in to the temptation to throw stones or demonize the person who's coming after you because that never gets you where you want to go. All of that helped me become, I think, a better leader. And when it turned out that the Genome Project actually succeeded quite nicely, uh, my visibility went up as a result of that. And I felt I was prepared uh, for whatever came next.
0: And Tony helped me a lot. Later on, when Collins became director of the NIH, he and Fauci worked together on many public health threats. It was in late 2019 when COVID emerged that they would begin their most intensive collaboration.
2: Well, we were all under incredibly intense pressure uh, for the entire course of COVID. Tony, of course, was the spokesperson of First choice um, when it came to expertise on infectious disease. He had been that
0: for HIV. He'd been that for SARS and MERS and Ebola and Zika. But being in the public role during the pandemic put Anthony Fauci at great risk. He was also uh, the face and the voice that
2: people who didn't like what was happening uh, began to demonize. And if their bubble was one that was feeding information that was dis- Accordant with what Tony was saying, they decided he had to be not just wrong, but he had to be evil. The threats that he got, probably many of which I don't even know about, not just to Tony, but to his wife and his daughters, you had to be afraid when you saw some of the threats that seemed very explicit, clearly reflected people who had learned something about his personal life and his family that somebody uh, might be in fact inclined to act on this. And of course they did. There was the envelope of white powder that was sent to him and which he opened at his desk at NIH. Uh, And there was an individual, I gather, who was driving across the country (laughs) intending to do physical harm, who was apprehended. So yeah, you had to be frightened that despite uh, the protection around him that somebody might get through.
0: I remain worried about that now. But Collins says, somehow, Fauci never lost his drive. Tony Fauci is one of the
2: most resilient
0: people I've ever met.
2: An average human being having gone through what he's gone through uh, for the COVID-19 circumstance, or earlier for HIV-AIDS, would have crumbled. Tony responds to this kind of challenge by upping his game, by being even more determined to get the truth out there, to get the science to work.
3: He hasn't had a day off in years. And, and I don't mean just a day. You know, what I mean, he has, hasn't even had an afternoon off. Anthony Fauci's wife, Dr. Christine Grady. People call him up, people all over the place call him up. I have, a, you know, I'm sick or my nephew's sick or my mother's sick. He calls them back, whether it's, you know, a Saturday and. 8 o'clock in the morning or, you know, a holiday, doesn't matter. He calls them back and he walks them through it and he figures out how they can get the care that they need.
0: She says in retirement, her husband's dedication to his patients will never waver. But after 54 years at the NIH, it's finally time for him to shift focus.
3: Here's what I hoped for him. (laughs) Time in the remaining years of his life To enjoy things that he hasn't had a chance to enjoy, time to spend learning new things, doing new things, and spend time with his kids and soon-to-be grandchildren. Those are things that people, you don't want to die without having done, let's put it that way. And I, I think that those are things that he should do.
0: This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, we sit down with Dr. Anthony Fauci.
2: My father uh, was a pharmacist. Back then, pharmacies were sort of the neighborhood doctor's office. They were referred to as doc. And people who either didn't have a doctor or who couldn't afford to doctor would come in and talk to my father about everything from family problems to psychological issues, and I could see the effect that he had on them because he cared. So he was kind of like the triage family doc of the neighborhood. And that to me is just cemented it in me that I wanted to be a physician.
0: That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.